I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg in South Africa is a Dr. Kavita McCann, who is a rheumatologist and specialist physician practicing as a senior consultant in the Department of Internal Medicine and Division of Rheumatology at the Chris Hani Baragwanath Academic Hospital. She lectures in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of the Witwatersrand. She is also the clinical head of the Medical COVID Unit at Chris Hani Baragwanath Academic Hospital and the current president of the South African Rheumatism and Arthritis Association. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure as we commence our series with Women in Medicine. You specialize in rheumatology, and for the benefit of our listeners, rheumatoid arthritis is one of the conditions. It's a chronic disease, mainly characterized by inflammation of the lining or synovium of the joints, and it can lead to long-term joint damage resulting in chronic pain, loss of function, and disability. Can you share with us some insight into the types of conditions that you treat? Just as you said, you know, so rheumatoid arthritis is one of many diseases that we treat. The rheumatic diseases really are diseases that affect the joints, the muscles, uh, your connective tissue and bones. And um, it's usually characterized by a disordered or dysfunctional immune system. Probably what you would have heard of before are conditions like lupus, systemic lupus, erythematosus or SLE, rheumatoid arthritis, things like gout and osteoarthritis. But a lot of these are autoimmune conditions. So basically what it means is that your immune system is attacking your own body tissue and in that way causing inflammation, damage, and really sort of various disease presentations. The problem with a lot of these conditions is that, you know, they are chronic disorders, often disabling, associated with a lot of pain. And although there's been, you know, a lot of advancement in this field of medicine, with, you know, novel therapeutics, most of these conditions are still incurable. You know, they require lifelong medication, chemotherapeutic medication. So you can basically compare it to uh, having a cancer, for instance, had something like uh, lupus. These are quite sort of life-altering diseases with uh, a lot of morbidity and often mortality. What would you say are some of the triggers of autoimmune disease? Because it's effectively your body attacking itself. Yes. So all these diseases are, you know, the actual basis or pathogenesis of these conditions are, you know, the etiology of it, so to speak, is not truly elucidated or it's unclear. Um, but they, we know that there are genetic factors involved from specific genes associated with your immune system as well as certain sort of X-linked associations. So, you know, hence why females are sometimes affected a bit more and um, environment plays a role. So whether it's uh, UV light exposure in lupus, certain viral triggers, EBV is one of the well-known viral triggers, smoking, um, alcohol we know is associated with gout. So there's various environmental triggers. And for women especially, you know, estrogen, the female hormone, 
is intimately involved in the initiation of many of these diseases. I think, you know, lupus is sort of the hallmark autoimmune disorder. And we know that estrogen plays a major role as a trigger in this condition. And then antibodies. So antibodies are basically these molecules that are produced by your body's immune system to fight disease. But these can then, you know, in an autoimmune condition, start attacking your normal body tissue. So it's an interplay of all of these things. You mentioned that estrogen is a factor within rheumatoid arthritis. And it strikes me that women are susceptible to different diseases to men. And this is one instance which definitely highlights that case. Are there any measures that we can take to help mitigate and and reduce the risk of contracting autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis? Unfortunately, you know, a lot of this is predetermined by your genetic profile. And we know that to be true because of the timing or onset of these conditions. For instance, you know, your classic lupus initiation can be as early as at the time of puberty. The most classic period for uh, developing a condition like lupus would be between 20 to 40 years of age, which is your fertile period, so to speak. And unfortunately, this is sort of your trajectory as a woman, you know, you uh, at that stage in your life, you are thinking about family, having a child, etc. And these factors, through no fault of your own, are things that could perhaps trigger or be the instigator of whatever you genetically predisposed to, to develop or to manifest. And um, it's unfortunately something you cannot totally predict even though there's a genetic basis, it's not truly uh, familial. So it doesn't mean that if, say, your uh, mum had lupus, that you will have lupus. Or if your uh, grandmother had rheumatoid arthritis, you would have rheumatoid arthritis. But I think what I could advise is to say that um, just to be aware of your body and know when things are not normal for you and to address it early, whether it's you know going to see your local GP or, you know, just monitoring it a lot more closely and being careful about what you use or take, you know, obviously things like oral contraceptives and uh, hormone therapy come with risks. And before using anything like that, you should, you know, sort of seek some kind of medical advice. And can you tell us what made you decide to pursue a rheumatology and, and become a, a rheumatologist? I think entering the medical career, you know, you have a, sort of a preconceived idea of what it is to be a doctor, you know, what it means in the larger scheme of things, you know, helping people, curing disease and, you know, making a difference in the world. Um, so that's your sort of naive perspective of medicine, you know, before you enter, you know, university and um, study further. Then, you know, you develop in your career and then you find things that, you know, inspire you or keep you inspired or things that you're passionate about. And it's usually through experience or time spent in a unit that really drives your passion. For me, it was when I came across to Johannesburg after being in Port Elizabeth for about five years doing my internship community service and um, starting my registrar training time in internal medicine. So my first rotation when I came to Baraguanath Hospital was in the Department of Rheumatology. And um, I just enjoyed it from beginning to end. 
my initial sort of aspirations were to do infectious diseases, work for the WHO, uh, you know, explore the world, uh, you know, go into sort of craziest parts of Africa and, you know, <laughs> but when I entered um, that unit, you know, it just everything made sense. The, the patients, um, the team, uh, the conditions we were treating were extremely interesting. And that female factor is a major drive. As we mentioned, you know, rheumatic diseases uh, affect females more than, uh, than men. And uh, those are the patients I was seeing on a daily basis especially lupus patients. And my special interest is in, in lupus. These are young females, you know, starting their, their careers, starting their lives. You know, I could relate to them in many ways and almost, you know, sort of uh, feel for their situation. So I became very connected with the patients I was treating. And it almost was an automatic decision that I'd made or that, that sparked in that time, those three months that I was in rheumatology, that this is what I could see myself doing for a very long time. It's so great that you get these opportunities from a rotational perspective to experience different things as you, well, before you determine what your area of specialization is, is going to, to be. You're relatively young in the field. And one of the things that has struck me from a South African point of view is the fact that we do not seem to have enough doctors. And based on your experiences, do you think enough is being done to make medicine an attractive career for women? That's a really tricky question because I think, well, from, from my experience, you know, just um, growing up in school, I always thought, you know, that, you know, you had these options and especially in an, in an Indian family, uh, coming from an Indian family home where studies are very, very important. And the only two options you have is medicine or engineering sort of that's sort of what's acceptable in your Indian family household so I think it's always there as an attraction um, based on you know either what you've um, sort of learned through family experience or exposures or also what you see on tv you know uh, western culture doctor shows you know that like Grey's Anatomy or ER and things like that so the attraction is there whether that, you know, is derived from anything done on the ground is a different story. So there is no real guidance, you know, for a young woman at the level of um, high school, et cetera, to say, you know, would you like to do medicine? You know, would, is this something that's fitting to you? I mean, it's just either, you know, something that you sort of bring into the, to the space uh, rather than something that's sort of presented to you. More than that, I think a bigger issue is when you're in medicine or starting your career in medicine, what you do find is that things are not easier or, you know, a woman's particular situation is not taken into consideration. Your working hours are exactly the same as your male counterparts, whether you have a family or not. You know, you sort of delay things like falling pregnant or getting married because, you know, you want to, you know, sort of give into your training as much as you can. It doesn't really accommodate for four months of maternity leave, so to speak. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but many uh, female doctors usually start their family pretty late. So you already sort of, you know, have different concerns as a, a mother or a prospective mother than, say, somebody in another discipline or field. 
How do you think some of those dynamics can change? Because what you've raised is incredibly important. And when we start off on our career trajectory, if you take time out of your career, you are negatively impacted. And having a family obviously contributes to that. The issue of being able to stay in the workforce, being able to rise up the ranks of the hierarchy are important factors to progressing a career which will endure long after your your childbearing years. So what do you think we can do to change things? That's exactly it. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, you know, my PhD, I've basically put it off for quite some time because... I was thinking of having a family and, you know, I knew that if I were to start a family, you know, working on a PhD that requires a lot of time and energy uh, would be impossible, you know, so I delayed that and until I had a child. And then similarly, you know, with any kind of academic role or leadership role, maybe not even said or outward, but there definitely is consideration or there is thought behind your availability and ability to to do do certain things. Let's say somebody who doesn't have those home responsibilities would have. And, you know, you sort of get excluded from these opportunities for sure. And I've seen that in, I've had that in my career. I think what could be done or what should be done is consideration should be made uh, with regards to hours worked by mothers. There should be definitely dedicated time to academics for mothers that might, you know, not work with the hours that, you know, specifically are, you know, dictated by the work standard. But, you know, at the same time, we could still perform and provide a service. And similarly, you know, with regards to employment, I mean, a lot of people, you know, are leaving the state because, you know, it's such a structured schedule in terms of, you know, where you're supposed to be, especially if you're working under another head or within a department, you know, you have to sort of toe the line. You don't really have the ability to personalize your time as you would say in private. So I think, you know, if this was considered, you know, a bit more, more people would seek employment or take academic academic positions, take public health positions rather than be forced to go into the private space and maybe not even be happy there, but do it because they have to. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kavita Makan, who is a rheumatologist and specialist physician practicing at the Chris Harney Baragwanath Academic Hospital, where she also serves as the clinical head of the medical COVID unit. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. McCann, listening to you, it really epitomizes the fact that our world was, let's say our working world was created around men's schedules and according to to their needs and requirements, and that it has to change to be able to accommodate a female workforce. And given the fact that we make up 50% of the population, these things need to be actively worked into the structures of the workday and the working world to accommodate us. And we don't have to work in a nine to five scenario, but it does need to be able to reflect our needs and the way that we can contribute to society as well as to ourselves on productivity. 
I agree fully. I mean, that's that's exactly it. I think it's something that I think a lot of women feel they have to do. They have to conform to this sort of man's world. And um, I think, you know, we should really be flipping the script and saying there's ways of being effective uh, at work without following traditional patterns and behavior. And I think that's what women offer. And women in medicine in particular, medicine is, well, from my perspective, it's not like any other profession or career. It's all consuming. You know, even when you're not at work, you're at work. It's just because of the nature of what you're doing. You're treating patients. You take their illnesses, their um, insecurities about their disease. You know, if they're not doing well, it comes home with you. You question, you know, have I done the right thing for, for this patient? You know, coming home with all that burden that I think, you know, is probably easier for a man to sort of separate but it's, it's hard to uh, juggle the two. And it's definitely hard to escape the emotionality of being a woman and being a woman in a role of carer. Your dedication, though, to the field is, is really evident. Um, the investment that you put into your work, the fact that you are president of the South African Rheumatism and Arthritis Association, S-A-R-A-A, which is a national medical society for specialist rheumatologists, as well as other health professionals involved in the care of patients with rheumatic diseases. Tell us how you came about to put your nomination forward and spearhead the organization. So something for me that's very important is balance in my career. So medicine is, you know, quite scientific. At the same time, it's a very social um, profession, discipline, whether you're, you know, in the clinical setting, you know, seeing patients, working with colleagues, etc. Um, what it lacks or what um, one of the challenges is being able to find some kind of creativity or outlet for thinking broadly or stretching your legs, spreading your wings. So that's the conventional sort of medical course, whether you're working in a hospital, working in a practice. With the society and uh, involvement in these larger, you know, national organizations, one, you get to expand on things beyond just the clinical space and, you know, exact change in a broader manner. And uh, that appealed to me as, uh, you know, when I was a junior uh, training rheumatologist, uh, you know, still a fellow in the, in the area. And I knew that I could, you know, provide something different, something new, something refreshing to the organization. And I could make it accessible to, to many people, especially junior doctors that, you know, have seen me as a role model or mentor through the years. And I sort of by chance, when I finished my rheumatology exam, uh, I finished a little bit earlier than, say, the rest of my peers. And I, um, my professor at the time said, you know, you finished early. I needed to work on this conference centered around uh, educating non-rheumatologists about rheumatology. So I was just finished rheumatology, uh, not a qualified rheumatologist by a professional body as yet. And um, I took this project on, you know, head first, um, created a concept, created a branding, created this event that, you know, from, from, from scratch. And I learned so much in the process of that and really met people that I probably wouldn't have met if I hadn't had the opportunity to do the conference. 
it went off really well. And from that, it became a regular thing. We ended up having it, you know, every other year. Following on from that, I got involved with the SARA National Congress in 2015-2016 and somehow landed up with the position of SARA treasurer and then found myself on the executive body. And from that time, you know, people saw something in me that probably they thought is somebody who could take this position on and, and make a difference. And I was lucky enough to be nominated then in 2017, but I decided to defer thinking that, you know, look, I'm going to be a mother soon, I want to do my PhD, you know, this is too much for right now. But then the opportunity came to me again in 2019. And I said, you know, I can't turn it away again. Let me just go for it, you know, regardless of where I am at uh, personally. And um, yeah, so I was nominated and I was lucky enough to be uh, voted in. And since then, since 20, March 2019, I've been SARA president and I've enjoyed it tremendously. These organizations are so important. It's, it's the cultural glue that joins colleagues, practitioners, and as you said, non-rheumatologists together along with their patients. Listening to the elements that you've spoken about so far, medicine seems to be so integrated within your life that I would imagine that it's quite challenging to get the right balance between adhering to your work commitments, but also living out your family life. What is your secret to, to juggling that you don't have balls dropped in either sphere, be it the workplace or, or the home, home life? <laughs> I think um, I have a lot of energy. <laughs> I think I'm sort of um, find time where possibly, you know, you wouldn't find time normally. The thing about Sara is I don't consider it work so, so much as sort of an outlet or um, something that keeps me inspired and keeps me motivated because in this position, and as you mentioned, it's, you know, it's very sort of integrated. It's, it's a way of keeping touch with your community, your, your alumni, and also it's a way of making changes that you would otherwise not be able to do in a position, you know, not of such high standing. So for me, it's, you know, my ability to be creative, to come up with ideas, to brainstorm ideas, it keeps me going and it keeps me interested in, in what I'm doing beyond just the clinical side of things. There's so many avenues, you know, it's taught me that, you know, medicine is not limited to, you know, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, but there's so much more. Creativity is adding fuel to energize you and sustain you as you continue to, to innovate and create new ways. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kavita Makan, who is a rheumatologist and specialist physician practicing at the Chris Harney Baragwanath Academic Hospital, where she also serves as the clinical head of the medical COVID unit. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. McCann, adding to your 
juggle of, of balls and finding additional bandwidth. As I, I mentioned in the, the, the intro and in the promo, you also serve as the clinical head of Chris Honey Baraguana's hospital's medical COVID unit. This hospital, for the benefit of our listeners, is the largest hospital in Africa, the third largest in the world. From a COVID point of view, globally, there's been over 487 million infections, 6.1 million deaths. And in South Africa, there have been approximately 3.7 million cases and 100,000 deaths. As a doctor and as an educator of medicine, how would you say life has changed in the face of COVID-19 outbreak? You know, I could look at that question in, in two ways. I think from a more public perspective or um, outside perspective, I think this pandemic has certainly put a spotlight on healthcare and doctors in general. I think um, in a way, you know, people understand a lot more what it means to be a doctor and what it means to sort of put a lot of what you do ahead of many other things in your life. And that's truly what it, what it means to be a, a doctor. How it's changed personally for, for, the, for doctors, and I can speak to how it's affected me and a lot of my friends and, and colleagues and junior staff. I mean, this pandemic is obviously something unprecedented, not something, you know, you prepare for in your, in your career. You obviously, as a doctor, you know, you are tuned to sort of um, tackling, you know, challenges or, you know, trying, trying to create solutions in whatever you do in terms of, you know, diagnostics, so to speak. But um, there was so much of un unknown factors with COVID-19, especially in the very beginning. And the sheer sort of disaster nature of this disease in terms of mortality and contractility, you know, the ability to, uh, to spread this disease as rapidly as it could, there was a lot of fear of morbidity, of mortality, uh, of your own morbidity, mortality, your own sort of life, as well as that of your uh, loved ones, you know, whether it's your parents, um, your, your children, your, you know, whoever it is. And we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of people, you know, grappling with, you know, where should my responsibility be? Um, you know, how much can I do uh, with this fear behind me? And what I saw is many people rise to the challenge and many people you know, sort of say, regardless of our fears, regardless of our concerns and um, our insecurities, you know, we're going to tackle this. And because there are people to treat, you know, the hospital is filling up. Um, we need to do as much as we can in the face of uh, the greatest uh, adversity or challenge. Um, there were days where we had, you know, patients in the order of 100 in, in a casualty waiting to be seen. We we had cubicles full of patients uh, on oxygen. You, all you can hear is the sound of oxygen cylinders around you. And there were days, you know, where pe more people died than, you know, you were prepared to deal with. And, you know, uh, especially in the very beginning where, you know, we didn't really know what the best treatments were and the unpredictability of this disease, you know, where people are happy, smiling, on oxygen, comfortable. And, you, you know, you just leave the room and you come back five minutes later and the patient's gone. So there was a lot of that. And, but in the face of it, what we saw was a lot of camaraderie, a lot of unity. And 
people who I guess would not be uh, communicating with one another before because of how you work in, in sort of a hospital sector, you, you know, confined to your speciality or your area of medicine. And there's this hierarchy between juniors and, you know, seniors. In this circumstance, we were all working together and you got to meet people and, you know, learn about people's life and make friends in, you know, under difficult circumstances. And I think that's one of the positive things that have come out of, of this COVID pandemic. As healthcare workers, you were exposed to traumatic circumstances and you know, seeing patients passing away as, as rapidly as you say, one minute being okay, the next minute passing away and having more, more cases than you can account for must have been incredibly stressful. What did you do as a lead of this unit to help with staff morale and and galvanize and keep spirits up? Obviously, on the ground, on a day-to-day basis, you know, you try and always be available for your team. And I try to do that as much as possible. We worked hand in hand, uh, you know, with lightheartedness, you know, whether it's, you know, having lunch together, you know, social distancing lunch together, whether it's, you know, sort of, just finding time during the course of the day to, to you know, to get to know each other. Uh, that's things that we did on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, between the waves, you have this period of quiet time or downtime, so to speak. And I thought it was very important during these times to try and rebuild and, you know, sort of get people up again. After the first wave, you know, one of the first things that we did as a or we decided as um, there were a few of us who decided to take on the Jerusalem challenge. And um, we thought, you know, what better way to show or to congratulate or, or commemorate the hard work and achievement of all the people who worked uh, during the COVID times uh, at Barra, as you said, the largest hospital. So we said, let's go big and go bold. And we took on this Jerusalem challenge. And, you know, it was uh, months of um, sort of, preparation and um, sort of enthusiasm directed towards this challenge it really got the the morale up and it sort of um, epitomized what Barra was about Uh, you know sort of people coming from all different backgrounds uh, coming together for something that's sort of universal and people were engaging from various departments doctors nurses um, you know ancillary staff and just enjoying their time together. And I think the end result was uh, amazing for people who haven't seen it. It's, you know, it's on YouTube. But I think, it you know, we went big and we went bold. And I think it is a good reflection of what Barra is about. And you can even see in the comment space that, you know, people who worked at Barra, you know, felt touched by the video because it truly was a celebration of Barra. And then after the second wave, we did what we call a COVID confidentials, which is, it was a so-called pandemic playback. So I got all the doctors together. We sat in a room and we discussed, uh, you know, with um, sort of a life coach, et cetera, we discussed what we just went through because the second wave was grueling as well, maybe even more so. And people got to, you know, to tell their stories about their time spent in COVID. And it it was really um, cathartic, I think, for, for many people um, to hear each other's own experiences during that time. 
And, you know, we do this regularly. So between the waves, we have some kind of event. And not so long ago, we had a soccer tournament. Uh, we got the guys together from various departments, had a really cool afternoon with cheerleaders, with um, mixed teams, etc. I think, you know, that's sort of the ways to keep people's spirits up, you know, just, you know, engage on multiple levels, not just in the workspace, but on a social level. So for me, that's very important. And I think another thing for me is that, you know, something that people might not know, and, you know, because the show is, you know, um, directed towards women, especially, a lot of our team was made up of female doctors. At one point, I think we were 90% female. And, um, you know, these are young, um, you know, very, at various stages of their career, but many young females who just entered the space and took charge in this, uh, you know, difficult space. And, you know, we had obviously some strong guys with us who uh, were around as well, but I saw myself as almost sort of, you know, even if I was, uh, you know, not far off in age, I still saw myself as a mother to these junior upcoming doctors. And I still see them, you know, I still would love to see where they go in their careers because I obviously wish them the very best and, continue to hope to see them grow and develop into leaders and great doctors. Thanks for sharing some insights into the inner workings of Krishani Baragwanath Academic Hospital and the responsibility that every member of staff takes to make things work and the amount of care that goes in, not just for patients, but also for each other. Turning towards more of a personal perspective as we start to wrap up today's show, one of the questions I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So if you can please share with us some of the key drivers that have helped you succeed. I think uh, the support of of a loving family, I think having a mother who's strong, ambitious, Um, you know, intelligent, educated, and, you know, wanting and assisting with uh, ensuring her daughters have the same um, sort of success or giving them even more than, you know, what they had in their time. That, you know, that's the backbone. I'm lucky to have two very strong women in my life, in my mother and my sister who's also an endocrinologist. So she's my physician role model, I guess. And my mom is my overall role model. In terms of pivotal moments in my life, so to speak, I think without knowing or without, you know, directly influencing it, but always being there, something that happened to me when I was, I think, four going on five. So we were in, we were in South Africa. I mean, not for very long. We spent a lot of time in London because my mom's from England and we had um, a helper at home who sort of was using certain illicit drugs and she um, just had a moment of an outbreak like she just she just lost it and she attacked my mum and she tried to uh, she was you know looking to kill my mum actually and um, I was four and a half my sister was five five and a half and I just remember her you know running to the kitchen Um, my mum picked up um, a pot my mom tried to block the, sorry, the knife drawer. And then she ran to the kitchen and grabbed a pot and she was about to fling it at my mom. And I stood in front of my mom and a lot of that boiling um, lentils 
basically fell on me and I was burned like so I sustained uh, burns to my head and uh, so literally most of my early schooling I had this massive burn ball patch I had to go for skin grafts um, I was fortunate enough that it hasn't affected sort of my appearance it was well hidden by the rest of my hair and you know it's a scar but it's a sort of a reminder of what I can do I think it's uh, something that I pride myself on is being brave and, you know, taking challenges, uh, even if I feel uh, intimidated by them or uh, maybe uh, scared, I, you know, I try to always, you know, challenge myself. And um, I think it's sort of a reminder that despite, you know, whatever scars we might have, whether it's physical, whether it's, you know, psychological or mental, you know, it, shouldn't sort of be a barrier to success or deterrent for, you know, living your best life because we just have one life, really. That's certainly a a notion of courage and bravery, which must be very inherent in you if it was already coming out at four and a half years of age in, in protection of your mom and living up to bigger things. As we close out today's show, please, can you share a few words of of wisdom or or motivation that you'd like to pass on to women and young young girls who are listening to us on the continent? I think for me, I think one of the biggest uh, things I think that I would like to share with um, women in Africa and women out there is regardless of your circumstances, um, if you have dreams, you know, turn those dreams into ambitions. Um, then work hard to achieve your ambitions and uh, don't conform, you know, be yourself and be true to yourself. Uh, However cliche that might sound, honestly, that's uh, sort of the best advice I can give anybody and embrace your humanity, embrace your fragility, your gentleness. And uh, I think bearing that in mind, you can achieve anything that you set, set out to achieve. I think you're living proof of living your best life and taking things, uh, tackling things, challenges and making them your own and going beyond the, the call of duty. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed this uh, conversation with you. I think um, it's uh, been sort of emotional in its own right, I guess. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we've been talking to Dr. Kavita McCann, who is a rheumatologist and specialist physician practicing at the Chris Harney Baragwanath Academic Hospital, where she also serves as the clinical head of the Medical COVID Unit.